Good afternoon, or for some good evening, welcome to Vital Conversations. Uh, I am Dr. Joel Kreisberg, and I'm here with the co my co-host Reggie Mara, who is on mute, and with Karen Wyatt, a physician and writer, who's a colleague of mine. Uh, the Vital Conversations is the community offering that we at Teleosis are, are doing monthly, which we bring a healer to the community to share their wisdom, to uh, discuss their work, and to relate to our field. Our field is coaching and narrative healing. So um, this way, there's a, tonight we will have a chance to listen to Karen's work, specifically uh, her work for, well, she's going to share her work on what really matters, Seven Lessons for Living from Stories of the Dying. She's a physician who worked with hospice and end-of-life care. And in, the, in, the con in our context at Teleosis, we see this as her work as a, as a good example of narrative healing, about how stories matter in the way that we uh, live our lives and the way we help others live our lives. And so um, we'll tell you more at the end of the talk about uh, the programs that we run in narrative healing and narrative health coaching. But at the moment, I'm going to at least say hi to Karen. Welcome, Karen. Is your sound on? I think your sound is there. There. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Hi, Karen. Hi. Hi, Joel. Good. Welcome. I'm going to read a, a more formal introduction and also make sure Reggie, hi, just get Reggie's voice in here too, our co-host. Hello. It's happy. I'm happy to be here as always. <laughs> Thank you. So Karen Wyatt is the author of the book, What Really Matters? Seven Lessons for Living from the Dying. She spent 25 year, her 25-year career in medicine caring for patients in challenging settings, such as nursing homes, hospices, free clinics, and homeless shelters. Uh, this that was what inspired her to write this particular book, and uh, she's a good writer and a, a great author. And as well, she's gone on to host something called the End of Life University, which we're going to talk about as well. It's an online interview series that features conversations with experts in all aspects of end of life care. And so that's important. We'll, we'll give you contact information for, for Karen at the end as well. So, Karen, thank you for taking the time to be here today. Thank you, Joel. It's my pleasure. Thank, I appreciate being invited. So let's go. I mean, so you wrote this book, and it comes from your, your, your own experience. So, you know, it's always good to put us in the context. Somehow, I'm, I'm guessing that when you became a physician, you didn't realize you were going to end up working with end of life. No, I had no idea. I, was, I trained as a family practice physician because I always had a whole person sense of medicine, that healing involved taking care of the whole person. And for me in Western medicine, family practice came the closest to that that I could find. But about three years into my medical practice, a tragedy happened in my family. My father committed suicide. Mm. And that really devastated me. His death was uh, quite a shock. And, and as you can imagine, 
Mm, extremely difficult for me to deal with in terms of grief and guilt Mm -hmm. and in my struggle to figure out how I was going to live with this this death of my dad I decided that I would start volunteering for hospice because I thought maybe if I really go into the pain of death and dying it will help me figure out how to come back around and get out of it. And as soon as I made my first patient visit in hospice, I fell in love with it. And I really knew it was where I was meant to be all along. That was the right place for me to be practicing. So I left family practice eventually and just did hospice uh, full time for a number of years. Mm-hmm. That and, makes sense. And so and, and interesting. So but I want to just point out, so you started by volunteering. Yes. <laughs> practitioners and it's one of those interesting phases that so often we in order to to, to to receive these lessons we have to go find them in a in, in, in a not like someone pays us way and now you're describing you're doing end-of-life university you see, we talk about that later on you're volunteering but you mm-hmm. ended up having to work in these conditions and getting to know people in a really interesting stage of life Yes. And, you know, I, what I really found was something that had been missing all along in medicine for me. And, and since we're talking about narrative, because I've always been a writer and storyteller, medicine was really missing the ending of the stories for patients. We never talked about the ending. We talked about the beginning and the middle of the story, never addressed the ending. Mm-hmm. And hospice work brought the ending and helped me understand how to incorporate the ending into the patient's entire story of life and the cycle of life. So it, it was a profound change for me in how I viewed healing mm-hmm. and how I viewed my own life and how I approached my own life. Mm. It's nice. And so, you know, it's a, rather than talking about, what, you know, it's interesting because the shift then also moves from this idea of curing illness, which leaves mm-hmm. off this chunk of the story, right, to, mm-hmm. well, how does healing show up in this stage? Right? And that's a lot of what your work is about. There's lots of healing yes. that happens in this particular stage. And that sort of forms the basis of the, of the book, Seven Lessons for Living from Stories of the Dying. So this idea of healing versus curing is one I just want to, you know, you know, so how do you understand the difference between those two? Well, I see curing as focused on trying to change what is to create something that doesn't exist yet, trying to go to some someplace else other than where things are, ah. whereas I see healing as embracing all that is and and trying to manifest the most of whatever is possible within the current situation. So I guess for me, curing has an element of denial in it that we're trying to get rid of what's here right now and move to something completely different. Whereas healing embraces mm. all that is in this moment mm-hmm. and just wants to expand it into the, into the most it can possibly be. I love that because, you know, there's a way in which it's, it's accepting and it's also about what your experience is, is something that's valid and something mm-hmm. that we can relate to versus curing is something that we're trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. What you just said, though, is actually lesson number one. Well, you wrote embrace your difficulties. So this idea of embracing yourself, I mean, it, it's relate, related to the idea of suffering. So I'm just going to pick some of these lessons. The first lesson is suffering. Embrace your difficulties. So tell me a little bit about, you know, this whole that you're learning. Well, as I, as I worked with dying patients, I realized, of course, 
they were grappling with the idea of suffering, dealing with terminal illness. But it made me recognize that suffering along with death is a necessary part of life. Mm -hmm. It's part of our growing process and that we actually, there's suffering that comes to us naturally as we grow from one stage to the next in life. We may not look at it as suffering, but as we grow and move on and leave things behind, there's a certain amount of pain and grief from what has been left in order to go forward into to what is in the future for us. So it made me understand, again, suffering is something we resist. We're constantly trying to push it away or get rid of it, numb it, and remove it from our lives. But if we can actually turn around and just accept it and embrace it as, oh, this is just the normal part. This is just how things grow. This mm -hmm. is just how, how it's meant to be. Uh, then we can actually we can actually move forward again and make the most of it. It's nice. So, so I think of it in terms of suffering, in terms of the Buddhist idea of the of you know the first of the four noble truths is the truth in suffering. But there's a way that I know in your work you relate it to to, to different spirituality. So it, it does also add us into spirituality. So I mean I'm reading right from your books. What really matters about suffering? <laughs> suffering opens the doorway to spiritual growth. Embrace your difficulties with equanimity. Recognize that they are a gift. So what do you mean they're a gift? Well, that I feel like growth can't really happen without a certain amount of suffering. And I always use with patients the example of the, the, the pine cone of the lodgepole pine tree, which its flanges are tightly closed, the seed covering. So the seeds are tightly enclosed within that pine cone and can't be released except by the intense heat of a forest fire. So the only thing that allows new pine trees to grow is a fire that causes the pine cones to burst open and release the seeds that lets new, mm. new trees grow. So in my mind, I think of it like there was a certain amount of suffering in the fire, but it was what allowed the new growth to happen. Mm, that's nice. And so, and so there's, there's great validity in the challenge in that particular image. It's also using metaphor as healing, which is another piece that we narrative healers love, the use of metaphor mm -hmm. as a way of relating. And then the other piece that you're, you know, you're very connected to, and it's a big theme through your book, is that there's something spiritual going on here. So we might as well out that and let it be <coughs> all right. spiritual. <laughs> so tell us how this is all spiritual. Well, what I gradually came to conclude, and this was after sitting with hundreds of people on their deathbeds and watching, hearing the stories of their entire lives and watching their dying process, I saw every single patient going through some sort of a growth process that to me appeared spiritual. And I, because I incorporate love and forgiveness in that they, I consider those spiritual tasks of life. And so I saw virtually every patient transforming in a certain way and growing. And then it made me realize, well, this is why we came. This is why we're here. And this is why these things happen to help us. It's like the fuel we need and it's the raw materials that we need to help us grow. So this way you're talking about spiritual growth is related to spiritual. There's some reason for all this. It's just not like random. That's how it, that's how it appears to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not saying that I have 
superior knowledge or anything, but that's how it began to look to me after s- sitting with so many patients. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, I mean, and one, another theme that's going to come in through your book is that you don't have to wait until you're dying to learn to use these lessons. Exactly, because I didn't, because I started, I started perceiving that there were certain lessons here that I was learning from patients and they were changing how I live right now in my life right now and I had patients tell me if only if I had known what I know now 20 years ago it would have changed everything about how I live now it's not to say that there was ever a mistake in the past or things should have been different than they are but it made me realize if I just wake up right now and embrace these lessons I could change how I live now and not be on my deathbed struggling to try to learn learn my lessons in the very last few breaths of life. Absolutely. And also, I would imagine you end up with less regrets. Is regret a big theme that happens in the end of life? Uh, absolutely. Although that's something I actually worked hard with patients to get them past regret because since it's about the past and really I wanted them to just focus on what's here and now. You have these weeks of life left. Don't regret the past. Just make the most of what's right here and now. Right, so that that so that one leads me to to the fourth lesson, which is dwell in the present moment, or paradise is the theme. You're right, paradise. Mm-hmm. Dwell in the present moment. So there's something about now to appreciate. Yes, yes, and I saw I saw observed it with many patients who recognized, you know, I'm I'm watching the sunset today because I don't know it might be the last one I will ever see, and I'm going to enjoy this ice cream cone right now with everything I've got because it might be the last time I get to taste ice cream, and so seeing the ending in sight made everything patients did feel more precious to them. And so I realized I could be living that way every day. I could look at everything in my life as precious and savor it and make the most of every moment. Mm. Which is a, 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 that's a type of gratitude practice in some way is a way of saying it. But also I'm wondering if there's, you know, because your book is so rich with stories is if there's, you know, a story that comes to mind for this one, this idea of being in the present. You know, you know, you have lots of stories, and if there isn't one that comes to mind, we I'll keep it. I'll ask the question. Well, there's a there is a story that goes with this chapter, which was of one of our patients who was uh, dying in renal failure, and he was actually what we would call a hobo or a vagabond. He had lived his whole life kind of riding the riding trains around the country never really settled down or had a job. He just was homeless basically most of his life. And we were taking care of him thinking he had only two weeks left to live. But he discovered that he had an ability to draw and got paper and pencils and started making drawings of things he had seen as he rode the rails around the country. He ended up living a full year, much to our surprise, but it was like he entered into this present moment and discovered this creativity and artistic ability he had never known he had. And it actually ended up prolonging his life for a year. And he, he, he had a very joyful passing at the end. Yeah, I imagine there was a lovely enrichment for you as well when you see someone thrive like that. So oh, yes. Talk yes. about healing and the gifts you receive from a person having that experience. Oh, that's lovely. That's a good – thank you. I'm just picking out a few. I think a, a big theme that, you know, comes through and an important lesson is forgiveness. Yes. Data around forgiveness. So tell me a little bit about forgiveness and letting go of resentment. 
Well, that was um, one of the biggest lessons I saw, again, virtually every patient working on and that I knew for myself was extremely important for me to move forward in my own life. So I, I saw patients struggling sometimes to let go of anger they'd held on to for 20 or 30 years. And, to, and most patients desperately wanted to let go. They wanted to move on. They wanted to be at peace before they died. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that even if there are people in my life right now that I'm not sure I want to forgive, I will probably want to when, it's, when I'm on my deathbed. And I might as well start to process that and work on it now. So what kind of practice? So this, you know, so if we're if we're taking this to the living, what's a forgiveness practice? I mean, you know, because you write and you blog, and people should I encourage people to join your blog because you offer people things to do. So, mm-hmm. what's a forgiveness practice like? Well, there are a couple that I use. One that I love is Ho'oponopono that you may have heard of from Hawaii, which is the practice of saying four statements. Let's see, hopefully I'll get them all right. Uh, I love you. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And thank you. I might have those in the wrong order. But um, it's actually a practice that you say, not face to face with another person, you say it in your heart, basically, for a person that you have a disrupted relationship with. And the idea is that you're you are apologizing even to someone who has hurt you by saying, I take responsibility for whatever I may have done that caused you harm, even if I I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's a really powerful practice. It sounds kind of kind of simplistic, but it's actually very powerful as soon as you start to take responsibility and understand that every interaction requires two people and that both people are responsible when something negative has happened. And when you own your own responsibility for it, it frees up the energy that that you've been holding on to the negative energy toward the other person. So that's one that I like to use. No, I like that. And also, it does point out this idea that I think is an important idea that, you, you know, there are, it, it's not unusual to have it be that someone's holding a resentment for something that you may not have thought you were hurting them. Yes. You know, it's like it it isn't that our intention. Often things happen that are just totally unintended. I just did a, I just was down at Esalen last week, and that was a big thing. It's like forgiving uh, for the people who did things that you experienced as painful. And they may not have actually been trying to hurt you. Maybe they, and actually, I love this idea of sometimes I have to forgive yourself for having to, for hurting other people for something that really needed to be done. Yes. Right. It's another. So forgiving myself, like I, ha- I think can think of a couple of examples of where something really I needed to get something done or get something happen, and along the way somebody got hurt because of that. That it was it was the process that happens. There's a lot of pieces to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And one thing I learned in this process was that I had to forgive my dad for taking his own life. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons it took me a lot of years to to move through my grief was that I wasn't forgiving him. And that's ultimately what was shown to me that aha, I'm holding on to this this bitterness that he made that choice in his life that hurt me so much, but I have to forgive him or I will never get out of the hole that I'm stuck in. 
Mm, that's a good example because mm -hmm. yeah, and we were you know particularly, I mean that's a good suicide or alcoholic parents, lots of things that parents do um, that children need to, to figure out how to forgive. I know you're a parent and I'm a parent. Uh, yes. you know, there's a lot of unintended pain that happens from the parents. Yes. <laughs> so we, it's a good thing to teach our kids to forgive, and forgive ourselves. So the, so that was forgiveness. Hold no resentments, and I you know so we've done. Embrace your difficulties, dwell on the present moment, hold no resentments. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, let's uh, pick a, how about surrender, let go of expectations. So what I found was that forgive, not forgiving people pulls us to the past, but having too many expectations for the future keeps us in the future. And both of those keep us from living in the present moment, which is the present moment is where love and creativity abide and where every miracles are possible in the present moment. So I learned that that the more we're hoping too much for something to change in the future or expecting something for the future, the less we are in the present and the less we're available to the love and, and creative power that's here right now that could even possibly help us heal. Mm, that's nice. And so it's really nice just the, the, the whole, you know, just sitting back and listening to the topic. We're still using healing in this. We have this great word, salutogenic or health inducing way. And mm -hmm. in a lot of ways you're, you're removing the kind of habits of mindset that we get into. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're not having any guidance on how we're supposed to use our mind and our attention. Uh, and so I'm curious how this work has, I mean, this now this book, it's funny, we've, we had a conversation several years ago. This speaker you wrote a few years ago at this stage. Yes. Yeah. I don't know exactly when. I guess I can look it up. About 2011, so it's five years old. What's happening? How is this, you know, you, you Who's, who's, where is this stuff going? Who's listening? What's, are you talking to medical doctors? Are you talking, who are you talking to? Well, right now through, I do, I started doing these interviews about the end of life and I've attracted a lot of people who already work in the end of life, mm -hmm. hospice mm -hmm. workers and chaplains and volunteers and social workers. And then people who've become really interested in the end of life, a whole, there's a whole group of people who in the last few years have just woken up and decided I need to learn something I need to learn more about death and dying and so they're they're being attracted and they're coming to listen to these interviews so that they can just learn things that they've never really thought about or talked about to anyone before does it seem like the topic is being a little bit easier you know we're as a culture we're slowly letting uh, having a little bit more space for having it be in the conversation Definitely, because there's been an explosion over a couple of years of all kinds of movements, grassroots movements, like death cafes are cropping up and um, death over dinner, a lot of venues where people are coming together to talk about death and dying. And there have been dozens of documentaries have been made in the last couple of years, all about death and dying. So it's really this, it's kind of this burgeoning movement Maybe because baby boomers are getting older, that fits. I think, you know, we're all having to look at that, the latter phase of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, and so a lot of our audience are professionals, health professionals. So, so you know, how does this impact a, a professional? You may not be working with an end-of-life care, but how do, how do I take this and start to, to 
take these lessons in? What I would say first is to simply be aware of the importance of death as completing the whole picture and the whole story. The cycle of life contains both birth and death. And so this healing container that we're trying to maintain for our patients, the, the crucible, has to be big enough to encompass birth and death. So to make sure that we don't ever give patients, foster the illusion our patients might have that taking a treatment or a course of treatment will prevent death because that's one of the false beliefs of our society that we can do away with death. We don't have to face it or look at it. Mm -hmm. And so if we as practitioners are willing to embrace death and willing to allow it in our own awareness, then we can help our patients when they, when it's time for them to look at it and, and be able to talk about it and embrace it too. Mm, that's nice. And then not have to take death so literally. I mean, there's other types of deaths like ending of marriages or ending of jobs or moving to other places in the world. And, and so there's that idea too, because we kind of cling. Sure. Yes. Yes. We'll have lots of opportunities to practice those little deaths to help us prepare for mm. For the big death. On oh, kids going to college. Well, yeah. Big, yeah. Really <laughs> Getting married <laughs> for the parents. And that says, I, you know, I, I've done, I, I want to talk about the end of life university, but it's a good time to see if my colleague Reggie, who actually, this is a topic that we talk about, and he's written about this himself in many ways, wants to, Reggie, have, I'm putting you on the spot. Got anything you want to jump in here? You know, I always do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Karen, I have, I have one specific question. It feels big, but I'll ask it anyway and, and see uh, where you might want to go with it. I mean, I, I was the primary caregiver for my mom for three and a half years and um, was with my dad for the last two years of his life in, in other ways. And my own sister took her life seven years ago. So the question comes from some of those experiences. But be, because some of us, well, s some people who are dying, as we all are, but as we get closer, have you found that you have to deal differently, and if so, how, with someone who's very, very passive? And I'm not speaking about passive as the body is failing in those last couple of days, but just kind of a passive accepting personality versus a very assertive, active questioning personality versus someone who's very aware of what's going on, somebody who doesn't have that much awareness. How do those differences in personality and awareness impact your work with someone who's approaching the end of life? Well, <clears throat> thanks for that question, Reggie. That's a great question. Uh, I would say that someone who's passive runs the risk of, first of all, not identifying what their own needs and wishes are at the end of life and therefore not having them met. Mm -hmm. And so I would want to work extra hard with that patient to help them um, come out of their shell a little bit and to help them consider and think about and talk about what they really feel inside and what really matters to them at the end of life. An assertive person will have um, a better chance of getting their needs met and being able to talk to people and telling them, I want this, I want this, be here for me. Um, but they are much more likely that those needs will be honored and met because they've been spoken and directed. And so personality does make a big difference. Some people, though, have bring a lot of anger with them to the end of life. And that can be a challenge as well. 
because uh, they may actually increase the suffering they're experiencing because their anger is so intense that they have a hard time finding the, the positive gifts within the dying process. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Reggie. Nice. No, that's, a, that's helpful. Um, so I can say if you want to ask another question, Reggie, if you want, or I can jump in. Is there a follow-up? Well, I mean, there's, it's, it's kind of a follow-up, and it's, it's probably it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit looser. Um, and and I, I touched on it in that question. So beyond personality, uh, how much have you found or how would you negotiate differences in someone who has what I would describe as a, a deeper or a more informed spiritual awareness, awareness of, uh, of something much larger than him or herself, whether or not it has a, a religious affiliation, it could or it might not, and someone who has you know, less or no real spiritual awareness. Um, and when I say spiritual, I'm speaking about that which is beyond me and mysterious, which a lot of religions have tried to explain over several millennia. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that, is that oftentimes patients that had their own sense of something bigger than themselves, that there's something going on here, there's something out there, some, something bigger than just themselves and their own life, those patients seem to have an easier time fitting death into that very big picture that they had created and embraced. Um, other people who maybe had never even contemplated, is there any meaning to life? Is there any reason why we're here? were suddenly thrown into a state of crisis at the very end because all of these issues were coming at them at once and they were um, conflicts with old conflicts with family members and trying to figure out what do I do with this and how do I make sense of it. So patients who'd never really contemplated anything before about does life have meaning or is there a purpose why I'm here, I found those patients ended up spending a lot of their time just trying to get through what's the meaning of suffering and why am I going through this? Trying to get to a point where they could experience love and perhaps forgive people. So I, I saw them at, more at the beginning process of trying to work through some of these spiritual concepts at the, at the very beginning, whereas others who'd already been working on these ideas for much of their lives um, were, were in a different place and they were looking at different issues and figuring out how do I surrender and how do I actually let go of this life and, and move on to whatever else there is? Yeah, great. And that, that, I, I appreciate that response because the question was really informed by my own mom was a fairly rigorous New York Italian-American Catholic. And she, had, and she really held, on, held that in a, for the most part, healthy way. And, and she was pretty much at peace when you know, she, she was ready to go for three years because she was suffering. And tomorrow I'm actually going to a memorial service for an elementary school friend who just turned six to a, he turned 62 in March, but he was diagnosed with ALS two and a half years ago mm -hmm. and, and passed away uh, earlier this month. And he was an agnostic, brilliant, really great, wonderful human being, but he negotiated the diagnosis and the you know, gradual debilitation in a remarkably equanimous and humorous way and mm -hmm. again so there was a rigorous roman catholic and a guy yeah. but they both had their sense of spirituality yeah that's that's very interesting it's all it all depends on the individual and where they've been in their own thought process and how much 
time they've spent, I think, in life thinking about some of these issues. Um, I did see some people with who were very rigid in their religious beliefs who had a lot of anger at the end of life, and it turned out they felt that their adherence to a religion was, was their bargaining chip. They were bargaining with God that they wouldn't have to die an uncomfortable death or or in an unpleasant way in their in their own minds if they adhered to the religion so suddenly their bargain turned out to be false and they had a lot of a lot of anger and felt very betrayed so that was also interesting to me to to observe that yeah that those literal interpretations of scripture can get in the way i think yes yes yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. So you, you've gone on to create this end-of-life university. So tell us about, you know, I believe it's all online, yeah? Yes, yes. So, so tell us about that. Well, it was in the process, actually, of trying to market the book when it first came out, because it came out at a time in 2012 when there weren't as many people open to the idea of death and dying. So I found a lot of closed doors. I found I couldn't be accepted as a speaker at any conferences and people just kept pushing me away like no thanks we don't want to hear about the end of life and I just decided to create that I'd create my own little telesummit online and start I would start interviewing other people who wanted to talk about death and dying mm. I started that in 2013 and I've continued I do two interviews a month uh, with people who everything from funeral directors to coffin makers um, to hospice nurses and social workers. I've um, <clears throat> interviewed, I'm going to be interviewing a clown who makes visits to patients in hospice and a uh, person who does pet therapy. So just all kinds of people who work in this, in this area. Mm, that's great. And so yeah, I'm sure that that's, that's making the conversation more accessible. Mm -hmm. And then you probably bump into, you know, new and curious lessons and, you know, from that process. So tell, you know, perhaps you can just share with us some just nuggets that came up. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've just been so touched by is, see, I always ask the people I interview, like you did, tell us your story. How did you get interested in working in the end of life? Mm -hmm. And I found this thread that has run through a number of different stories of patients whose of people whose lives in some way were touched by the AIDS crisis, who got interested in working in the end of life in some way because they knew someone who died of AIDS, or they... Um, they they had a you know an AIDS hospice in their community that a parent was involved in, and so it made me recall the AIDS crisis when it occurred and how tragic it was. And I had a f friend from medical school who died of AIDS, and how horrible that that whole that whole era was of AIDS. But seeing now that there's been this. Um, kind of magnificent <laughs> blossoming that came out of that crisis of all these people who've been inspired to go on and do wonderful work. A documentary filmmaker, for one, a woman who makes shrouds for patients who want to have a natural burial. All of them, their lives were all touched by AIDS in the past. Mm -hmm. They went on to dedicate their lives in some way to help other people who, who are dying. And so that for me, that was a really beautiful thread of redemption that I saw as a result of that terrible crisis that happened. 
Well, yeah, it's interesting because that also reminds me of the image that you use of the pine cone. So you describe that idea that you need fire to open up the pine cone, but there's a way of being exposed to the experience of death and dying in, 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 in larger ways or smaller ways. And that goes back to what Reggie mentioned too. It kind of opens you up to a, a broader broader life really mm -hmm. a bigger story <laughs> yeah but it's all you know i always love that in the, the harry potter image uh, jk rowling i forget the animals where you can't see the animals unless you've had death in your life uh, yeah. your eyes up to something that most people can't see right but then it's like yeah you can see that and there's a way that one relates when they've had a strong experience of grief you can also have that experience by working with people mm-hmm and have that as well. Yes, I think one of the most profound learnings a, a healer could have is to in some way, some way work with death and dying, whether it comes to you in your own life experience or you go and be a volunteer for hospice and get exposure to it because it really does open your eyes. It really is such a, it is kind of a simple thing, actually, it's, you know, I, 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 I'm a coach, as well as a, as a practitioner healer. And it's one of the, the assignments that I, I, I not infrequently give. Um, it's also one of the ways that I have, I have to actually coach emerging professionals, health coaches, and they're trying to figure out how to you know, figure out how to make a living and do the job. And I say, well, you can, one way to start coaching is to start go volunteering at hospice. Just go out there. And not only do you, will you have that experience of this wonderful experience that we're describing here that's very moving, you also meet other health professionals. You're in a medical context. You're in people's homes. It's just like there's a lot of features and landscapes that change. And it's pretty much open to everyone. I mean, yeah, it is. And I, and I think we also need end of life coaches we need coaches willing, you know, life coaches, but who are willing to embrace end of life as well and, and encourage people like do your, create your advanced directives. Be sure to think through the end of your life and be ready and prepared for that as well. Well, that's actually a really important point. It, it was sort of originally a hospice nurse had a lot more of that in her job description or his job description. But now my own experience and my mom, I was with my mom through her many years of cancer and passing away that the, the, the hospice nurse ended up keeping track of a lot of drug data because mm -hmm. that's what hospices do now. And so there is a, an emerging role for, end, for health coaches in end-of-life care who's just there to deal with the feelings, the experience, the awareness, and the behaviors, you know, uh, that you're describing. So that's why we wanted to have you on because I felt like it is an opportunity. And, you know, definitely. And, you know, and you're, you're, you're telling us the story about how, well, when you started, you know, when you wrote this book, there wasn't a lot of conversation. It may not be that there's a local, you know, the bulletin board saying looking for health coaches for end of life care. But it may be actually we had someone at, a, at we did a, one of our live events who did this where she was part of her training. She ended up volunteering at the local primary care clinic. And by the summer now she's got herself doing a whole working there because it, she created a bunch of relationships. Mm -hmm. And th that's exactly the point you made that how I started in hospice as a volunteer and it turned out to become a full time job ultimately but I think we all do have to kind of pay our dues in the beginning and volunteer work is a good way to start that.
Yeah, and it's also a way of, uh, of I see it as sort of seasoning and maturing, and there's all these unintended, positive unintended consequences of just putting oneself into uh, uh, healthcare settings, and and so, you know between the relationships, this is actually kind of where you get the integral kind of thing. You get relationships, you get a setting, you get you learn new behaviors, and you actually bump into elements of self that we're not necessarily familiar with and you get comfortable with being around others who are suffering. And that is a, a way of learning healing. So it's a... If exactly. Folks, I, I could probably do that. Um, so Reggie, any another question or should we go to open questions yet? I, I think let's, why don't we give the, uh, the uh, listeners a, a chance. If we have a bunch of them, we'll have time for them. And if not, we'll go back to some of our own questions. Mm -hmm. So if that's okay, um, folks who are listening, if you're on your computer and you put your cursor down where it says participants, um, you'll be able to raise your hand by clicking on that button, finding your little, your name there. And there's a, a, a prompt to raise your hand. And we have one already. I already have the first one. If you're on a phone, um, you can press star nine. And my best information is that will also raise your hand. And I'll do them in the order that they appear. So I'm going to um, unmute Lois McNaughton now, one of our colleagues here at Teleosis. And welcome, Lois. Hi. Hi, Karen. Hi, Hi Lois. Um, actually, I work with uh, Joel and Reggie, and I volunteer at hospice. Oh, and, that's wonderful. And one of the things I was thinking about while you've been talking is the relationships with the uh, resident's um, family. Yes. And, and the work that needs... Oh, I'm supposed to start my video. Hang on a second here. Okay. <laughs> Hi. I'm talking and not, I'm not looking, but I'm um, and about the, um, the amount of time that I spend with the families and, and dealing with their stories uh, and what's happening for them. And I was curious to hear what, what your experience is. Yes, actually, sometimes I found that the patients were doing fairly well with the whole process of dying and accepting what was happening. And it was the families who were in a crisis and who needed much more of our attention and time and processing. And that if the families hadn't received that, they might actually have interfered in a way with the patient's dying process because they were, were not not being helpful and not being accepting. So I, I think it is really important. I mean, I think even from a coach's perspective, being aware of the whole family story, as you said, is crucial. And to see where does this, where could this family use a little help and support in this process? Very much so. And, and I agree with you that so often it's the family that seems to need more. Sure, because if you look at every individual in the family, they each have their all their own issues that they're going through of grief and guilt and um, fear and denial. And they're, each one of them is trying to process that in addition to whatever has happened in the past, that their past traumas that they're holding on to and resentments. And the stress of what's happening right now. Yes, yes, and the, and the difficulty of 
accepting it and allowing it to happen and and being present for it. So that's actually a lot of the a lot of the work we did in hospice. The patient needed minimal support and the family needed the majority of our of our time and effort. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Thanks, Lois. Sorry, sorry for not turning your video on. That was <laughs> that was on me. Um, so this is the instructions again for uh, anyone who would like to ask a question. If you're on the computer, um, down at the bottom of your screen, it says participants. If you click on that, um, there'll be a raise hand button down at the bottom of the participants menu. If you're on the phone, you can press star nine. And if you're really shy and don't want to use your voice, there's a chat um, button down at the bottom of your screen on the computer and you can send um, a message to to me. You'll see my name in the left-hand column, and I'd be happy to ask that on your behalf. So um, anyone else with a question? Yeah, I'm going to repeat that. So this is a new thing we've learned. So star nine on your phone will allow you to raise your hand, and then we can unmute you. So before today, if you called in, there was no way to ask a question. So somebody's got to test out this new awareness <laughs> that we have. <laughs> and who knows what will happen. And while we're waiting, I can, one tip I could share, I mentioned Death Cafe, which is a movement sweeping across the country of these informal gatherings of people to talk about death and dying. And if someone is a coach in an area, they can go to deathcafe.com. I think it's Death Cafe. Is it com or org? I don't know, but they can go to Google Death Cafe and find out if there's a Death Cafe that meets in their area they're just free meetings you can attend once a month and meet people who are interested in talking about death and dying. But that might be a good way to network in the community too. I like that. I mean, it really is, it's a, you know, it's really important to, there's just a lot of resources. Uh, another re I noticed that, so, so Karen and I actually taught workshops together a three, couple hour session on, on a, an interim approach to end of life care and that and, and so i know and i did that also with my wife wendy and some of you know she's a physician and it's amazing how much she's seen that asking for you know patients to really you know are they prepared well what does that actually mean and there's actually just a lot of systems available to you online for just giving you you know just a, you gotta you gotta do it now Right. And for a lot of people, that's that's a series of conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not just a like, hey, I'm supposed to know what's happening. It's like for most people, it's like I haven't even really thought of it. Yeah, that's the crisis. The crisis we're in in Western medicine is that no one talks about death and dying. And we now have this movement to get doctors to talk about it, but they haven't been trained how to do it. So Doctors don't know how to even begin such a conversation and, and what to talk about with patients. So we've got a lot of work to do to bring that up to speed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And then so actually we do have a question from, uh, from Jody. So Jody, if you can hear me, the, uh, the floor is open for you. So Jody doesn't have a microphone listing? <laughs> maybe, yeah, because there's no... Um, uh, Jody, then you need to, to type it into the chat box for us because it doesn't seem like your microphone is up and running. All right, so that should, that'll take a second. Yeah. 
And while she's doing that, Karen, the end of life cafe or end of life university is end of life university is its own. I mean, do, do we want, want to send people if people want to know more to your particular website? Well, they they can find it through my website, but it has its own website, which is eoluniversity.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll find out about the upcoming interviews there um, and lots of other lots of other things going on on that website. So I'm typing that in as we do that, E-O-L-University, that's all one word, dot com. Mm -hmm. right, so hopefully, Jody, you're going to email us your question so we can, we can uh, and then yours is, is Karen Wyatt, M-D? Yes, yep. dot com, yes. And of course, the book, What Really Matters, is uh, you know, it's a book that I refer to all the time and I do highly recommend it. And not to mention, I also read your newsletter and your blogs. Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, it, it, and it isn't too much <laughs> for those people who were, oh, here's the question. Reg, you want to read the question? Sure. So this is from Jody. Um, and not so much a question as a thank you from the bottom of my heart for continuing this conversation. My first job out of nursing school was a combination hospice and detox. Um, love that we're having more and more compassion and conversation. Thank you. And that's from Jody. Um, actually, to everyone, but I think it's specifically directed toward you, Karen. Oh, thank you, Jody. Thank you. That's what that's, that's the most important thing we can do is simply have these conversations and sit and talk about it together. I think I think that moves things forward and will help change happen uh, the, the fastest if we continue this and, and keep talking together. Well, which actually, which so I can cycle back to so another one of the lessons is purpose manifest your highest potential and of course in a way that's this your work is the example of how you're doing that mm -hmm. <laughs> and so how is that to, you know when you know that's connect that off to your your own learning journey with working with client working with patients well because i i wanted to be a doctor from the time i was 12 and i always knew that that was my purpose in life i I always saw purpose as something big out in the future that I was working toward and trying to achieve. But once I started working with dying patients and realized they don't have a future, <laughs> they, so do they, not, do they no longer have a purpose? And I struggled with that for a long time. And they were struggling with it as well. Like, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? And then I suddenly realized that there is a there's a purpose that we have that exists in the present moment. And that's simply to be the best person we can be in this moment with whatever we have, whatever we've learned so far, whatever tools we have, whatever flaws we have to be the very best we can be and bring that forward in each and every moment. And in that way, we will gradually be working toward something that will, that, that may come in the future. But if I die um, in the next five minutes, I will still have lived my purpose because I lived it in the moment right now. It's not something that's going to happen five years from now that now will be impossible or destroyed if I, if I die in five minutes because I died before my purpose. So we're fulfilling our purpose in every moment just by being who we are. It's interesting because we're, you know, the, if we, I'm going to step up one level in the conversation in the sense that, that by being around loss – 
or you know the dissolution process it actually gives us an opportunity to sort of get more clear about where we are or what we can do or you know to, to have more clarity about that sort of growth or center that's so true <clears throat> very true because we have to keep shedding what isn't really us what isn't really authentic or what we no longer need uh, in order as you said to keep becoming more and more our authentic selves mm. that's nice that's good thank you, know, you. i'm going to jump in again we have we do have a question uh, from mary ellen turner um it was sent to me through anna so uh, this is for you, Karen. I was with my mom during her last days. I was told that many regress and age toward the end. I recited a ditty that she used to tell us as kids and paused at the end where we gave the last line. She was in a coma, but repeated the last line in a voice that mimicked a three-year-old, then returned to her coma. Do you, th do you see this as a frequent occurrence? Um, thank you. Thank you for that question, Mary Ellen. And that's a beautiful story. I love that. I love hearing that. Uh, and yes, I, I would say that I think, you know, we become our most elemental selves in a way, if I, if I can use that word, or our true essence in some ways uh, in the dying process, because all of our pretenses get stripped away from us. And so I saw many patients who became very childlike in the end, and that included my own mom who died three years ago. I saw some similar things with my own mom. And for me, it was very sweet and very touching and really helped us bond together in her last few days of life. Mm. Thanks, Karen. It's a wonderful, it's a, it's a tender topic and it really is, uh, I'm glad we did this. Um, you know, it's a, you know, I, I, I'm glad I haven't, we haven't spoken in a while, but Karen, you're yeah. so <laughs> glad you're out there doing this. And, uh, you know, I've, as I've been following it, and so I hope some folks tune in and, uh, you know, to your work. And, you know, your book and the end of life university and they see opportunities for, I mean, I think we're a pretty, you know, broad mix of, of, of health professionals from nurses to physicians to health coaches to, to some are just interested in the topic because uh, there was a lot of uh, positive, um, you know, wanting to be here that came up in the earlier mm -hmm. while we were preparing this. So I definitely would like to acknowledge your work and thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Joel. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening and seeing people who are embracing the end of life. And uh, so if people do sign up for my email list, I have a lot of things going on. I'm creating a training course for becoming an end of life navigator that coaches might find helpful because I'll, I'll provide the training that people need to know mm. how do you lead someone through the process of figuring out their own end of life wishes and doing their planning for the end of life. Nice. That's what that training will consist of. So it might be a nice piece to add on to a, to the coaching that someone's already doing if yeah. they just want more information about that. Absolutely. That makes sense. So yeah, because there is, there is, there are things that can be learned formally as well as the seasoning and the learning about healing, about being in the process. So it's good. So you can find out about that. I imagine at your website, KarenWyatteMD.com. Mm -hmm. Yes, or the EOLUniversity.com. Mm -hmm. 
either website. So uh, yeah, I'd enjoy connecting with people and being able to share some of the information that I have. And at the very least, it's these interviews are really fascinating. And it's a good way, even for people who are not totally comfortable right now with the talk about death and dying, to listen to the interviews, because you'll hear other people having a conversation, and you can listen in on it. And, uh, and you'll find that you're learning a lot and gradually opening to the to the the topic. That's nice. So, you know, as similar to what we do at Teleosis, this, you could be watching this live or you could be watching this as a recording in our archives. We have archives of all our calls. It sounds like the end of life university archives, all the calls and, you know, people come and listen to it because we're, we're really trying to support this idea of narrative healing, of being present for healing rather than curing. Uh, You know, for us, we, we, we kind of really dig deeply into, into the, not so much end of life, but into this idea of narrative and acceptance in a class called Narrative Healing, mm-hmm. which we, the next time we offer the class, it's an online class, uh, will be in June. I believe it's June 22nd. So it's a once a week class where we really dig deep into what is your story or my story and my healing story with the idea that, that you have to do the, your own process in order to be able to work with somebody else. Absolutely. Which is what that particular class. We also, at this stage, are are calling our our coaching technique narrative health coaching, which really is the idea of stories matter. So Mm -hmm. when working in health and with wellness, uh, your story is key to the healing process. So our methodology and so our foundations of narrative health coaching also will be opening up that same week of June, June. 22nd i'm not sure if that's exactly that class opens up and um i hope that you join us and then of course there's more more vital conversations calls coming down as a monthly call and so uh, i'm going to thank everyone for joining us today and thank you karen for being here thank you thanks for having me joel it's been a pleasure to talk with you pleasure reggie thanks for your support as always and thanks welcome karen it was great to, to meet you as well yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank you. So everyone, we're going to sign off now and look forward to seeing you soon.